The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Our mini-series, our series within a series, on the Lord's Prayer. And we're looking at a, a section uh, that uh, we'll talk, I'll explain a little, I'll explain more in a minute, uh, but you may not find it in your Bible. Uh, and so if you find that to be interesting or have had a question about that, uh, then hopefully I'll answer it in part. Uh, I, I will say that um, in the years I've been in ministry and taught and preached on the Bible, I, I have not preached on a passage that was in a footnote. Um, and so this is something we're all doing together uh, and will be good. Um, just sort of setting the kind of parameters and, and, and certain uh, context for where we're at before we look at this passage. This is at the sort of leading edge of Jesus's ministry. And it tells us at the end of chapter four that Jesus had been going about uh, throughout the area and he had been healing. It tells us, I was looking at this this morning, it says, he is proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame uh, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and even from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus' fame has spread rather significantly throughout the area based on what he has done. And as the folks had gathered, he, he, they were gathered on a hillside around a large crowd, and he preached this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and kind of the center of that sermon is this prayer. And he is teaching his disciples how to pray. He's giving them an outline uh, for how they could go and interact with the Father and bring their requests to him. And so in... in typical Jesus fashion, he ends where he began, and that is on the glory of the Father. And so would you give your attention to the reading of God's Word? We're in Matthew 6. We're going to pick up in verse 5 and go through verse 15. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The prophet Isaiah tells us that, all men are like grass, and that our works are like the flowers of the field. And as 
The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord will endure forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us this morning. Father, we pray as we come to this passage, this doxology of speaking praise to your name, Lord, that that would happen this morning and in our midst. Lord, as you have promised, where two or three are gathered, there you will be in their midst. Lord, we, we claim that promise this morning and ask that your, the power of your spirit would apply this word to our hearts and you would continue to change us into the matchless image of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we begin to look at this passage on the Lord's Prayer, or, or really the Disciples' Prayer, we're going to... Uh, move our way towards this conclusion or the doxology. But before we do that, we're going to look at kind of a way of review uh, of what we've covered over the last several weeks. Jesus begins this prayer by putting our attention on the Father. And, and, And as we looked, we saw that through Jesus, we have access to the Father as a child has access to its Father. Now, some of us have imperfect fathers, All of us have imperfect fathers. Some of us have uh, even grossly imperfect father. And so through this image, Jesus is is offering us the the beauty of an intimate relationship with a father who loves us and cares for us in all things. And as we consider him, he tells us to, to hallow God's name, to give honor, to set it apart and to keep it holy. And so he is leading us in this, setting our perspective, our our orientation where it should be. And in the proper um, context. From there he launches into six different petitions. He starts off and we are acknowledging the priority of God's kingdom. One of the main messages, if not the main message of Jesus and his earthly ministry was the kingdom of God and its coming. And so here we have Jesus instructing us to focus our attention on God's rule both in our life and in the world. And that we should, as Christians, keep that as a priority. Next, he, he shifts and he begins to talk about the provision of the Lord. And so often in my life, I tend to be very thankful for the provision. And I forget to acknowledge in, in gratitude and, in, and thankfulness the provider. And so he, he acknowledges the trustworthiness of the Lord um, to uh, give us our daily bread. The most basic of physical needs. He, he is saying your father knows what you need and he provides for it. And, and as we have physical needs, we have spiritual needs. And the Lord says to us that, that we should ask for forgiveness. And that we should forgive in the way that we have been forgiven. And he talks about how that looks. And he unfolds the dynamic of the gospel and how... Jesus is making us right and that we are reconciled to his Father. And it's through that that we have this relationship. And so we see our physical needs and then our spiritual needs. And really dovetailing out of both of those, but even greater than that, he says, and deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from temptation. So much of our temptation tends to be tied to our physical needs and our spiritual needs. And so much like Proverbs 30 where it says... Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the God 
The, the idea here is that the Lord would give us exactly what we need, both in our spiritual realities and in our physical realities, and that He would protect us in all those things. And as we have worked through this prayer and looked at it in its various petitions over the last couple of months, one of the things I had found when I started looking at this doxology is that if we've truly prayed this prayer, if we have meant it, not just said it, then the the orientation or the reflex of our heart should be led into a position and posture of praise. A a doxology, which is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, it fits perfectly within that context. In in Greek, the doxology comes from two words. It's one of praise and one of speaking. And so a doxology is simply speaking praise towards God. And so that's what Jesus does when he ends this, par- this, this prayer, or what some would say maybe Jesus didn't end it that way. Because what you might be asking is in your version of the Bible that is either unfolded on your lap or on your phone, you'd say, well, I don't find it in the text. So what's that all about? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> when I was in seminary, um, I-, I learned about something called textual criticism. Now, for those of you who that may be a new word, what that means is, is they look at the various manuscripts, both those in Hebrew, those in Greek, those in Latin, and how through the process of, of, of transferring God's word and preserving it, scribes would write it down with pain, painstaking detail. One of the things that my, one of my professors said, who was a, a foremost textual critic, he said that we can believe in, in the authenticity and, and really the trustworthiness of Scripture because amongst all the different manuscripts that compile our Bible, there is very little deviation. Actually, none of the deviation strikes at any vital um, doctrine of the faith. And so what has happened is that what we find is we find this divide in the manuscript and the evidence of it. The earliest manuscripts do not have this passage, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And so those earliest, most reliable, which we would credit to being closest to the source, since it doesn't have it, the idea is that maybe it wasn't original to Jesus. But what was um, sort of an explanation of where might it have come from is that in the Jewish tradition, after a prayer, they were commonly concluded with praising God. Now, I want to look at a passage in 1 Chronicles uh, 29. You may say, 1 Chronicles, that's where I did my devotions this morning. Well, good for you, Uh, (laughs) because you're probably the only one. Um, In 1 Chronicles 29, this is at the end of David's uh, reign as a king, and he's getting ready to transfer the authority of of the throne to his son Solomon. But as he had had this desire to build a temple for the Lord, for the Lord not to dwell in the tabernacle any longer, he takes up an offering from the congregation. So this is kind of the context of of 1 Chronicles 29. And so they, they, they draw in a tremendous amount of gold and silver, and iron, and bronze, and David is moved. 
and his core to the, to the, in response to the generosity of his people. But even that, he's looking beyond the provision, but he's looking to the provider and saying, all these things, this is actually just the Lord's, and, and you're giving back to the Lord what he has so generously given to you. And he is, he is standing in the assembly amongst all the folks. He, he, he launches into a prayer. I want you to hear what he says and compare it with the doxology and math that we commonly associate with the Lord's Prayer. It says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O God, our God, and praise your glorious name. Sounds very similar to the doxology that is associated with the Lord's Prayer. So some scholars believe that this was something that was added in perhaps the second or third century when it begins to show up in the manuscripts. Now, one of the questions I was curious about this week when I was studying it is, well, why maybe would it show up in those different eras, in those, the second and third century? If you're a student of church history, what you begin to realize and what you know from the study of history in the early church in the second and third centuries, the persecution of the church really began to amp up. And so here you have men and women, people who are following Christ, who are living in the, in the Roman Empire, who are considered rather radical and strange. These are folks that are orienting their life and using this outline or pattern of prayer that they've been given from the Lord. And they're really having to own this. They're not just saying it, they're truly praying it. And as they're praying it, the reflex of their heart is to praise God. They're, they're, they're asking to be delivered from evil. For they're watching folks get torn in shreds in the Colosseum. And, and as Nero in the, in the first century uh, would, would, would dip Christians in pitch and tar and coat them. And he would light his garden with Christians literally burning them alive. You had other folks who were being tortured because they were following Christ. And, and as they're praying for their own forgiveness and, 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 and to forgive their debts, as, 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 um, they, um, to, to receive forgiveness as, as they are forgiving their debtors, th- these are really serious words. Maybe more serious than we're accustomed to praying, but they're, what they're ultimately longing for is His kingdom to come. And for his will to be done. And so their hearts are drawn in praise. And so let's look at the doxology and see what it contains. And maybe it would be the reflex of, of your heart. It starts off with this, um, this possessive pronoun. It says, for yours is the kingdom. For yours is the power. For yours is the glory. Forever and ever. Amen. This idea of, of kingdom and power are actually two words that are associated, and there are two concepts that are linked to convey one concept. Two terms that are linked to convey one's concept, and I'm convinced that that concept is, is that of the Lord's sovereignty. That of the Lord's sovereignty. 
You see, these folks, much like us, know that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And that any king, no matter who he is or how great he is, there are limits to his authority. There are limits to his power. And so often as as they reign, they're always looking out and looking maybe over their shoulder at the next person who will rise and supplant them as king. But here these folks are looking to, to the Lord. They're looking to the king of the universe, the one who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word. And what they are saying is, only you are the true king. Your, your power, your authority, your kingdom, there is no limit to it. It, 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 is, it is matchless. It is infinite and it is eternal. And, and, and they are drawn and, and affirming who God is because they know that they are desperate without him. So they're looking to their father, the, the one who provides for them. And, and, and they are communicating their utter dependence on His divine grace for, for every need that they have. And, and with, it, with it, they are affirming their confidence that He is able and willing to do something about it, to, to step into the fray, into their suffering, into their brokenness, into their pain, into their sorrow, and into their shame, and into their guilt, and that this is the Lord who meets them in those places of darkness and brokenness, and He is the one who will bring His kingdom to bear. They're looking forward to that day of this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, this upside-down kingdom, and, and it's rather countercultural values. Jesus, as, as the Lord and Savior, the, the one who they've been listening to and who they've seen re- redeem and to heal and, and to restore, to rescue, they're looking at him as the embodiment of the kingdom. And they're seeing a foretaste and a glimpse of what is to come. And, and, and so like those folks, perhaps what we should do is to concentrate on Jesus and, and to understand what is this kingdom that he talks about. What is its reality and its power and its authority and its extent? You see, this is ultimately what he's giving them a taste for. And it's that the kingdom was the main message of his ministry. The means of bringing about the kingdom is the cross. And so Jesus, as he is proclaiming these things in his mind, he knows ultimately where he is going to end. And it's through that that he brings rescue to his people. And it's through that on... That cross where above his head was hung a sign in Greek and in Aramaic and um, another language. I just forgot Hebrew or, or Hebrew. Um, why did I forget that? Um, and, and through those three languages, the Roman Empire was announcing to the world in, in rather mocking fashion. They said the king of kings. What they didn't know was the reality of their own declaration that they were announcing to the world in the known languages. That here on the, on the cross, here uh, the, the, the one who was bleeding and dying, was bleeding and dying in their place to right all the wrongs of the world, to reverse the curse and to make everything sad to come untrue. To, 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 to the one who was stepping in to the pain and into the suffering and he had taken on flesh and he was coming so that there would be a day when every tear would be wiped from every eye and every poor diagnosis and, and, and cancer and, and brokenness of, of relationships and in business and, and in our own souls would, would be removed. And then that truly people would be able to worship 
worship as, as they were intended to worship. You see, from there, he, he talks about the kingdom and the power, but he talks about the glory. You see, the one who is Lord over all things, who has unlimited power, but uses it not for his own self as advantage, but uses it for the flourishing of others and, it, and leverages his resources to bring others from a place of suffering into a place of flourishing. That is someone who's truly worthy of our praise. Glory in its root in Hebrew uh, is the word kavod. And that word kavod is a word that even has a heaviness in how it is expressed or said. And, and what it points to is this idea of substance. It's something that has weight. It's not like chaff or, or vanity as it talks about in Ecclesiastes, which is blown away. This is something that, that sits and, 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 and doesn't move. And so this is talking about the glory of a king whose, whose kingdom will not be moved and it has substance and it will be fulfilled. And it will be fulfilled through what Jesus is doing. Through this idea of glory, this, this doxology talks about that, that the kingdom and the power and the glory would be forever. Literally, it's into all the ages. From now until Jesus comes back and then beyond. That this kingdom would reign. That this kingdom would rule. That these things would be true. That, that, that we are sustained in, in complete dependence upon His divine grace. That, that the full uh, reflex of our heart would be in praise and adoration for who He is and what He has done. That we would be drawn into these realities. And that we would be transformed into the matchless image of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. And from there, as they're, they're, they're moving out of this praise, they, 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 they put down a definitive stamp and they say, Amen. So often, we, that's just a maybe customary way that we conclude a prayer. It's, it's, it's just a word that for some of us we use. It's almost like a wish of sorts. We pray something, we say, Amen. What, what Amen really meant was it was a committed confidence. It was a committed confidence that the things that we had said or prayed or declared and, and, and having taken them to the Lord, we were believing that in the hands of the king, the one who uh, governs and controls all his creatures and all their activities, that in, in accordance with his will, he would bring them to pass in a way that would bring glory to his name and the flourishing and good of his people. And so, amen, uh, maybe a, a better translation would be, so may it be. May this be true. That's what he is declaring. And that's how we round out the Lord's Prayer, that so would these things be forever and ever into all the ages, both now and in the future. Because what Jesus is doing through this passage and what he is looking for is he's trying to, to help us relearn and, 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 and train our hearts to strain forward to that day when his kingdom would come and his earth on earth would, the, uh, sorry, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes you've got to start the, the tape over and work your way through it. That, that those realities of the kingdom as it is in heaven as it was intended to be in the garden when all was good and very good and there was harmony and, and, and perfection in God's design, 
That that would be brought back to bear and that sin and the curse would be reversed and everything that the curse had touched would be redeemed and rescued. And Jesus, through this prayer, as he is training his disciples, he is teaching them the values, teaching them to want what he wants and to love what he loves and to desire what he desires and that those things would come and, and with the substance and the power and the matchless glory of God's sovereign reign would come to bear on this earth. You see, that is, that is what we should long for. But so often what we find is that our hearts are, are warring between two kingdoms. We want the kingdom that, that is ours And making our name great or our kingdom great or expanding it. And what we find that there is a tension between what our hearts want. But ultimately what Jesus is moving it towards. And so this passage in so many ways is calling us to repentance. For how we don't want to fully acknowledge that we have someone who is over us. It's trying to teach us to be dependent. It's trying to teach us. Uh, to, to submit, knowing that someone has our best interests at heart and is pursuing our shalom and our peace and our wholeness and our flourishing and our thriving. And that, that he, uh, I think as Bill had said this, I'll credit it to Bill. It may have been someone else, but Bill gets the credit today. That if we knew everything that God knew, we would want the same things he wants. And so what this is doing is giving us a keyhole glimpse into a far more beautiful reality of where Jesus is moving all things and through the cross, how he is redeeming all things. And so as we reflect on this passage and as we conclude our study in this prayer, it's only appropriate that we begin to look forward to the realities of, of the, the new heavens and the new earth, and the new creation and the fullness of his kingdom and how it has come to bear. Yes, we see expressions of it, and we see tokens of it today, but, but, but we are not yet there. And so our hearts should, should yearn for it. And so what this is doing is this is providing us with a respite, a place for tired Christians, a tired Christians to come and, and, and find rest and to find grace and to find mercy. And, and it is for this reason that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because Jesus gathered with his disciples. And as he was in his last hours on the earth and as he was moving towards the cross, he, he celebrated, celebrated with them the realities of the new covenant, uh, of the Passover. When, when God had had, had 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 his people sacrifice a lamb and spread it on the wood over the door and that through Jesus, blood was uh, spread onto a cross, and there we find the fullness of, of the deliverance that we have in, in God and His plan of redemption and that Jesus is our true, true Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, who takes away the sins of the earth. And that is why we come and that is why we enjoy this feast because, friends, we are on a journey and we are looking forward to a day that is not yet here and, and we need rest stops along the way, and we need refreshment along the way. And so as we come to this table in a few moments, I pray that, that you would just consider the reality of, of, of who Jesus is and what he has done in his kingdom that will have no end, and that you, it would find, give you rest, and it would replenish your weary soul, 
and it would give you reason to celebrate and praise his great name. Would you pray with me? Our great God and King, we thank you for the richness of your mercy and grace. We thank you that you loved us while we were still enemies. But you have brought us into your kingdom and you have made us sons and daughters who have rights and privileges to those things which will never pass away. And Lord, we delight, Lord, as your people, that you have taught us how to pray and that, Lord, when we do that and we're sincere, Lord, it moves us to fall at your feet and to praise your name. Lord, would you continue our worship as we come to your table? Lord, would you continue our worship as we confess our sins, Lord, but we know that there is grace and forgiveness and mercy in Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.